and welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am Emily Scott, and this episode is airing on Sunday, May 17th, but was pre-recorded in the previous few days as we're still stitching stories together for you from our quarantine hosts in the age of the pandemic. But we have another great show for you, so let's dive right in. First up, we have Sarah Weck with a special interview, and here it is. All right, so we can start the interview now. Hi, everyone. I am with my uncle, who is a epidemiologist working in Vietnam, and we're going to talk about COVID today, which is a new topic that no one's ever heard about. Um, not at all. Not at all. Uh, it's the evening time in Vietnam and the morning time here, so... You're more awake than I. Are you sure? <laughs> I don't know about that. So we're going to start just with the basics. The first question I have is, as an epidemiologist, do you see have you seen this situation as shocking or inevitable? Well, so certainly um, early on, like way back in January, where we were starting to hear about news about this virus that had popped up in Wuhan. And to be to be clear, I don't think we know that it actually occurred or was first the first case says definitely came from that food market. I think what prompted the investigation by the part of the Chinese was that they were beginning to find a bunch of people connected to the same place, which considering they couldn't figure out what it was, made them a little bit worried. And the fact that it was a wet market where animals were um, slaughtered for food and sold and, and whatnot probably is as much the reason why they did the investigation as anything. But anyway, it was all very new and nobody... So at that point, when, when the numbers started shooting up into the many thousands in China, it appeared inevitable that it would spread. China is a big country, um, but it has a lot of internal commerce, but they also have lots of people. So Wuhan is the third largest city in China. It's got a lot of people, obviously, and a lot of people in lots of different businesses, a significant number of them are going to be involved in travel, both tourism, but um, also business travel. It's also got a lot of universities, so there's students, there may even be students from other countries that, that go there. So to some extent, I figured it would spread, and of course it did. And then it you know, went around the world pretty quickly, almost as fast as SARS did. But at, at least within a few weeks, the Chinese had sequenced the virus, and they released it. They released the sequence very quickly. I mean, you have to, you have to go back to the SARS outbreak the, the big difference between the SARS and this one was that you didn't really become infectious with SARS until you were sick, but you were really sick. So mm. people who are really sick don't go out and about. They don't go to restaurants. So they may, they may actually have had people. So most, a lot of the, the, the cases in the SARS were healthcare workers because they were coming in contact with these people when they were sick. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, now 
a lot of people are either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic out there and, and spreading the virus. So um, it's very different in that sense, but it's, it's you know, a related virus. So um, obviously it's got a significant amount of mortality and, and we will see just how many um, people succumb to this virus. But I, I definitely think that um, calling it just an influenza is probably understating it a bit. Got it. Yeah, I know that's in the beginning people were struggling with that because we have the flu every year. So it's easy to just fall back on what we know, especially in the U.S. Right. and not understand the magnitude of what's about to happen. I mean, I don't know how we could have, but. Well, there were opportunities, but uh, but that's a yeah, that's a topic for a different discussion. True. I'll stick to this stuff going on yeah. in Asia. Okay. <laughs> what have you found are the most common misconceptions about COVID? I know there are a lot, so. Well, I mean, I think the the challenge really is that, uh, like like with many things that are new, there's a mixture of over fear and underappreciation. So you, you have, to some extent, people who very early on were screaming, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, which maybe it was, but uh, we weren't quite as aware of it. Um, but maybe it, it wasn't like completely falling, you know, it, 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 it's falling in patches and, and some, some places will have a worse time this time. Um, this is not going away anytime soon. The, the, the way of pandemics is that you usually have multiple waves. Um, uh, the pandemic that most people discount completely, the pandemic of 2009. Um, so like the, the Northern Hemisphere's first round with it was pretty benign. But if you talk to people in Argentina or Chile, their perception of the 2009 pandemic was very different. They had hospitals overflowing and mm -hmm. lots of other things. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes people's perceptions can be um, mixed. But I don't think this is a regular flu and we don't have a vaccine and we don't have any good therapeutic options right now. I mean, there's some promising small studies of combination therapy with interferon and with um, some other... Um, antivirals seem to have some improvement, but we don't really have that one. The numbers are too small to really know whether it would work on more people and wider types of people. Um, so that's, so that, I mean, that's one of, one of several things, but I think, I think that the challenge is trying to not overplay how serious it is but not underplay it either. And um, so some politicians are doing quite well with um, their messaging. I think your governor seems to have a pretty good approach to presenting mm -hmm. information in kind of a, here's, here's what we have. Um, the ones that are, that, that in Asia at least, the ones that strike me as really strong in their control would be Vietnam, well-recognized, Taiwan, Singapore, maybe not right away, but um, but after a fashion, they, they got things going again. Um, uh, certainly further south in, in 
New Zealand, which is not obviously part of Asia. Um, Hong Kong, I also heard, Hong is Kong, doing well. Hong Kong's done reasonably well. It has sort of a dual, um, lots of um, people from the mainland come coming and going. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so, so a lot of these, now whether these um, approaches would work in the U.S., probably hard to say. I mean, I would say probably they wouldn't work because... You know, so for example, um, Taiwan, which is probably the the the, the A plus country, they did very quickly as soon as China started reporting this something's happening in Wuhan and cases of this, that, and the other thing, and describing you know some seriously ill people in the hospital and on ventilators and then some deaths and then so forth. So they started like that, and especially once they knew it was SARS like they're like shit we know SARS <laughs> we know mm-hmm. what it does we need to um do something and so pretty much everybody that arrived that was not from Taiwan had to give their phone number um fill it out on on a card and you had to give your address of your hotel or wherever you were staying and so forth and they were monitoring everybody's phone number I mean, they were literally doing sort of like the um, Uber. Yeah, Uber was tracking where everybody that was using the Uber app right. was going. Well, they were basically doing the same thing. So, and and but they would they would actually call. So, if you were told that you were supposed to be in quarantine and you left your hotel, was everyone supposed to be in quarantine right when they got? Like anyone who entered um, was quarantined immediately. Well, or- no, it, no, they they started off only with people coming in from China. I um, see. Okay. And they, they expanded it to other countries, but they um, it was pretty aggressive. I mean, that sort of thing would probably not go over too well in the U.S. But um, definitely not. But uh, but but not not too bad. So so Vietnam was a little bit um, different. Pretty much very early on, they began restricting travel from China, but they also also began testing everybody that came in through the airports. So much so that it was slowing things down to where it would take several hours for you to get out of the airport. And then they decided to move things to, like, off-site locations. So they basically just shuttled everybody to an off-site location to stand and wait to get tested. And then after a while, they were like, no, we're not even going to waste time with that. We're just throwing everybody into quarantine. And they just quarantined everybody. Um, But it's pretty successful, relatively speaking. We have among the lowest... um, numbers of cases of, of any country. Am I certain that, that 100% of the cases have been caught? Um, no, but, but I also realized that if there were any really big outbreak, the, the system within the country would probably identify it right. pretty quickly. Because there were lots and lots of messages in many of the communities where there were cases that if you see somebody coughing, you should notify your building attendant or your whatever and those people were like quarantined right away so i mean that's how they were able to catch some of the um big outbreaks that we we had here i mean big is a relative term of course um here so um, right our big outbreaks were like 30 or 40 people um yeah <laughs> lucky lucky it, vietnam well because they, they they did aggressive testing and um and contact tracing now, to some extent, one may argue that their contact tracing was a little over the top initially. 
um, because they were they even had this classification system of F zero was uh, the a case, and then an F one was a close contact of that person, and then an F two was a close contact of the close contact, mm-hmm. all the way down to like F six, and of course that's Kevin Bacon. Um, <laughs> But, uh, Naturally, it is Kevin Bacon. <laughs> and that is science, everyone. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but, no, seriously, they, they, they really were, were, they had this whole algorithm where these people will go into mandatory quarantine. So F1s and F2s went into mandatory quarantine. Um, yeah, well, the F2 may have had no contact at all with the... Yeah, F2 patient. seems... Yeah, I see um, what you're saying now. No. Bit but, arbitrary. But did it work? It appeared to work. So uh, is is it perhaps overkill? Maybe. Hard to say. Um, but anyway, and then and then for the last... Let's see. We've only just gotten out of um, lockdown. But um, from... We were, we were in lockdown from like the... So you're not in lockdown anymore? No. Vietnam's not okay. Yeah, we're we're um, pretty much every every business is open for business. I think karaoke bars for some reason are not. Um, I don't know. Uh, passing the microphone a, around that sounds a little sketchy. Yeah, it might be the mi- microphone or who knows. Are bars open? The, the, the ones that would frighten me more are the like the hookah bars, you know. Yeah. Um, Ugh. I mean, that frames me to begin with, but. Um, not a hookah fan being passed around um (laughs) one thing that has we haven't quite figured out at least from our office's perspective is um about travel and and whether we can travel safely and so forth but within um, vietnam within vietnam got it obviously leaving vietnam means you come back to quarantine so um (laughs) no you probably get quarantined wherever you're going to um that's kind of how a lot of Asia is working these days. You quarantine us? We quarantine you. What are the largest unknown factors in the equation? Meaning, what information don't we have to make informed decisions for public safety right now? I know you talked about um, vaccine development and scaling and all that. So what are you seeing that we would need to make further decisions about opening up? Um, one thing that we don't understand and will affect our vaccine um, development is just what immunity means. Do we have a good marker for what immunity means? So we know that people get better. So our, our antibodies, if you have antibodies, does that mean that you, and, and you had something that was compatible, does that mean that you're protected? And this is even more important for the people who were asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic because, you know, it appears that some people who have mildly symptomatic disease don't seem to have much antibody. Does that mean they're protected or not protected? I mean, so they they tested positive for, for the virus, but they were mildly or no symptoms at all and yet their antibody response seems to be weak. Are they protected or not protected? That is a big question that we don't know. So it might um, be more likely that you don't know, but that's like people that got very sick 
would be more protected or is it just coincidental or the answer you don't is know? we don't we, we, I we got don't it. Really okay. know entirely what um what antibody we don't entirely know what what antibody means um mm-hmm. uh and and how much the other questions is we we know from some other um diseases like measles for example that if you have this level of antibody which is usually referred to in terms of titer meaning that if you dilute your serum with so many aliquots of water you will get to like a, a 1 to 64 or 1 to 6400 means that that i can show that the virus disappears from the mm-hmm. or doesn't cause any infection in a cell culture vial so i mean the higher the dilution the more antibody you obviously have and um uh, so that is, so but we don't know what the cutoff is we don't know what is insufficient or optimal and that will have effects on when we do vaccine trials now because there's still a lot of active disease in the world if we were able to get a vaccine trial out soon um while there's still plenty of people with this, the disease and you did the trial someplace where there's still an active ongoing lots of cases you would be able to maybe identify who did or did not get sick by giving the vaccine of course you would have to test them before you started them in the trial so if they were no antibodies at all be able to enter the trial but if they had some antibodies are they um have they already been infected and, and maybe recovering mm-hmm. um that's that's the challenge and just we just don't know entirely what those numbers are and it may take a second wave to know how many people who had such and such level are protected the second right. time around nobody wants to think about that but uh, but that may be one way of identifying how much um protection there really is uh, i mean certainly a vaccine trial could like i said in in a setting where there's lots of disease you could do the vaccine trial without um necessarily having those numbers but possibly by the time we get a vaccine to the point where it's ready for you know a larger trial there may not be enough disease in that particular place um right. where they were planning on doing the trial yeah um that's going to be a, a challenge for the whole vaccine thing um, got it is um is that but i i don't think we really understand the antibody what does it mean um how much it means and and the, my concern a lot is is these rapid tests um that are out there um i don't know you you may have seen the news that the fda basically sort of put a hold on the sale of many of these um products because they some of them were determined to be fraudulent but even the ones that aren't fraudulent it's not clear what a positive marker for antibody on these qualitative tests means so the quantitative ones the ones that kind of give you a tighter level may be more useful but the but the qualitative ones which are either yes or no or maybe maybe means that part of the strip colors but maybe the whole strip doesn't color or maybe it's a really faint line 
or the negative line also looks like it might be colored. So what does that mean? And does it mean that you're protected or not protected? Does it mean that you can go back to work or not go back to the work? You know, because um, if you still have symptoms, you probably should stay back, stay away from work, even if it's been a couple weeks. You know, these are some of the many challenges out there. Um, yeah, there's lots, lots more to, lots more there. We, I mean, this is a completely new virus. We really don't know much about it. Um, we're learning a lot about it all the time. We're learning about, for example, now the, the U.S. and in Europe is that there are a certain number of kids who are getting sick or young adults who are getting sick, um, and some of them are severely sick. And, you, and is that COVID? People are rumoring that it's not COVID or it's something new or it's mutated. Well, I, I, I don't know that we know whether if there has been some mutation. So the coronavirus is different from, say, influenza. So influenza is kind of built to change rapidly because it's, it's, a, it's an RNA virus like corona, but it's made up of little smaller bits that can mix and match with other flu viruses if a cell is infected with more than one virus. And so changes can happen faster in that sense. Also, because it's nice and short, there are bits can, that can um, glom on or drop off and some other stuff that makes flu a little bit easier to mutate. This is one long strand, 30-some um, thousand base pairs, but um, it's, it's long enough. So it probably doesn't change quite as much, but it's an RNA virus. So we have two types of genetic material in our cells. DNA is sort of our master plan. Because it's a master plan, our cells have error checkers. There's some enzymes that check the DNA as it's being made, a copy is being made, to make sure that it is um, accurate. We really do have error checkers um, uh, for DNA. But for RNA, if DNA is kind of like the front office, RNA is a little bit like the messenger boy. So if the messenger boy doesn't quite get the message completely right, it's okay as long as it gets to the right place. And, and, and if it's the wrong message, it won't make the right product, and that'll be the end of it, and it'll get digested and go away. RNA doesn't have any of those built-in error checkers. And so that's why you can get mutations. But the longer the, the strand, um, the fact that it's all one strand makes it a little bit less easy for it to just pick up random things um, from the outside. Um, so it probably doesn't change as fast as, as, it definitely doesn't change as fast as flu. Now, they're checking, I'm sure, the... Um, the genetic sequences of all these more serious cases in, in young people. But we don't know what that means yet. Because if we can identify that as part of a structural gene that would make it either easier to get into a cell or less easy to get into a cell or easier to get into maybe the deep lung cells, um, then that would be more concerning. But it, it seems like some of the... Um, problems have been that too much inflammation happens too quickly, too much um, response um, in certain organs happens too quickly. And then we've got some, you know, 
interesting new findings, like blood clotting seems to be an issue in some people. Um, and so blood clots in the kidneys can cause kidney failure, blood clots in the brain can cause strokes. And so that could be, um, that's also part of the, the picture. So there's lots of different things that we're learning all the time about this um, this virus. And, uh, and that some people seem to be more prone to getting really sick and other people have no visible signs of illness. So, and it doesn't really, it's not entirely, although older people then definitely are more likely to get seriously ill, there are, you know, you may have heard about the 107 year old lady who just got over COVID. See, so. really, 107? Yeah. Wow. And they had an interview with her. That's She's cute. force of nature. I wanna say that. That sounds great. <laughs> So Vietnam has opened up. Obviously, the U.S. is pretty far behind where you are right now. I'm just thinking about it in terms of a second wave. So to me, I think a lot of people think of opening up as we're opening back up. That's it. I mean, I know people know about a second wave as a possibility, but no one wants to think about it. But in terms of being prepared for it, what should our reaction be? I mean, obviously, you don't know how it's going to play out or you how a second wave would come or when. But in terms of opening up, what is like what should we think about when we're coming back to well, our lives? I mean, there, there, there are lots and lots of variables, um, but certainly I think improving the testing situation. Um, so testing has to be a key part of um, the situation. I don't think that you can in 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 the U.S. for example. I don't think you can do the kind of contact tracing that they do here in Vietnam because it's well past the point of that really being helpful. But certainly, um, I mean, if, if it appears that, you know, testing results are going back up and, and, you know, the numbers of cases are going back up at some point, people may choose to reinstate some of these lockdown processes and procedures now, it's unclear, for example, so the, the Vietnam was very aggressive with like closing schools very, very early. Um, but it's not quite as clear that kids are the main sources of transmission, although kids tend to have a much less illness, so it's quite possible that they could be shedding. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not completely discounting the uh, closing the schools concept, but... Um, is that necessarily something that is uh, good? I mean, I think a lot of these things are going to have to be reevaluated many times. And I'm not sure it's just going to be two ways. It may be three, five, it could be 10. Uh, we may have it this for, you know, 10 or 15 years. It's hard to know. Oh, my. Right now. It's really hard to know. And to say that we know what's going to happen, anybody that says they know what's going to happen, it's just blowing smoke because they really, nobody knows what's right. going to happen. Exactly. But we can anticipate that there will be probably one or more additional waves. Um, I mean, so we can look at some of the pandemics around his, historically, you know, so like the 2009 influenza pretty much, there is no evidence for the old type of H1N1. It's pretty much all 
this one. And so every year that we have the, the seasonal flu, it's pretty much that particular one. And so when was that? That was 2009. Um, uh, virologists are still calling it 2009 pandemic, um, H1N1, um, PDM09. Back in 1950s, um, there was an H2N2 influenza that was present on this earth for about 10 years and then it disappeared. Gone. We haven't seen it since then. It's in why banks. It's in banks, um, like stored specimens from years past. Um, uh, but why it disappeared, nobody really knows. Um, it just disappeared. So it's possible that this could be around for a few years and then just disappear, or we could start doing like we do with the flu we do constant surveillance for right. what is going to change and um and depending on how the virus the vaccine when there is one works we may have to tweak it from time to time mm -hmm. um kind of like we do with the flu we tweak it from year to year right um, well not every year they change it but uh but they always have a meeting to discuss whether they need to change it um, and how to change it. So, two weeks actually. Um, one in the spring, one in the fall. Whether whether we need to do it twice a year, whether we need to do it once a year, um, whether we even need to do it every year, it may be that it's every three years that we have to change the vaccine. But again, we don't really know too much about this one. We know some about um, the cold viruses that are also coronaviruses. They're um, in a related family, but they're kind of like a different branch of the family. So, so we know about that particular family and, and how that behaves. We don't really know much about this one because we haven't. So SARS didn't last a year. It was out of the world within a few months. I don't think that's going to happen in this case because, again, this is different in the sense that there are a lot of people that have um, milder illness, but that just means that they can spread it to lots of people. Um, got it. So, so you've got slightly different approaches in, in even in Europe, you know. Um, so Norway and Denmark and Finland have more aggressive social distancing um, and to try to minimize the number of um, older people getting sick and other stuff. Sweden doesn't have that, and its death rate uh, is much higher than its neighbors. Um, so hard to hard to know. Do you know what that means? The the more aggressive social distancing. Like, what does that look like? Well, I mean, it just means that um, you know people are stay working more from home. There, you know, there's more restrictions on how many people can be in a store and some other things. So. Um, uh, so their their approaches are sort of different, and they've got slightly different results. But even in Asia, we've got we've had sort of a variety of different um, approaches. So um, Taiwan never went into lockdown, like a hard lockdown, um, whereas Vietnam did. Um, uh, and we won't ever know whether uh, it was better or worse. So right. Taiwan has higher numbers than we do. Um, so maybe it was better, but 
we can't say that with certainty. So if Taiwan decided to do a harder lockdown the next time, um, uh, and they end up with a lot fewer cases the next round, um, then they'll know that maybe it was the hard lockdown that was right. reducing the number of cases. But in any case, both of those, uh, both Taiwan and here and Singapore, contact tracing aggressively um, and lots of restrictions on travelers and, and lots of other things are, are things that would be difficult in the U.S. or even in Europe. Um, although Italy kind of did it a little bit late in the game, but they, they did start doing it. Um, and then some of the other countries around it were more aggressive on lockdown stuff too. Um, but it's really hard to know what is the exact proper balance between shutting down the economy and um, um, because at the same time that you know you're saving lives, if you're if you don't have any money, then it's hard to keep the, the healthcare system going. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a it's an interesting balance. But I think testing has to be key and to some extent contact tracing although how much of it is necessary is a different question um uh so i think we're we're sort of in um in the middle of um uh phase phase two so so mitigation and stuff like that in in the u.s so Mm -hmm. we'll have to see how things go we, we have lots see. of natural experiments. Different states are doing different things. And yeah. Different I countries mean, are doing different things. and We'll see how it we goes. We just have to learn how, how which works and which doesn't work. So. Thank you to Sarah for that amazing interview. And now here's Teresa with our musical break. Let's take a musical break before we get into more news. The track I would like to share with you today is by the incredible Little Richard, one of the founding fathers of rock and roll, who broke many musical barriers throughout his career. He passed away at the age of 87. This is By the Light of the Silvery Moon. Enjoy. Mm-hmm, by the light of the silvery moon I want a spoon To my honey I croon I love to oh ho honeymoon Keep it shining in June Your silvery beams will bring love to Shining in June, you'll see a baby. We'll bring love dreams, we'll be calling soon by the light of the moon. Soon. 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Let's jump right into these next stories. The upcoming piece is about the Muse Brooklyn and the circus troupe AB Cirque. They have a live event on May 23rd at 7.30 p.m. Sliding scale. Go to the Muse Brooklyn's Facebook page for that. The Muse also puts on or also has daily classes ranging from juggling to stretching to dance, all that stuff. Thank you. Here is the feature. It was my birthday. How you doing, Luther? Doing good. And I met up with my wonderful friend, Luther. Sitting outside on the East River. The East River in Manhattan, where Luther lives. I met up to interview him not about living there, but about leaving there. Now, Luther has been one of my best friends for the past 15 years. That's not exactly why I'm interviewing him today. You're Luther Bangert. A circus performer, juggler, how do you describe yourself? Um, yeah, circus performer, juggler, street performer. And you were the, the second person to call me on my birthday. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, after years of being apart, I was finally living in the same city as Luther. Some months passed, and then the virus struck. Luther was planning on leaving eventually, but this certainly expedited things. Luther is a juggler, and being a performer in the States is hard, so I understand why he's leaving. It's also personal, but it's also economic. But what about those who stay in his industry? Not only stay, but put down roots in the circus arts. Okay, um... So, I did an interview with Angela Buccini-Butch. Angela is a founder and director of The Muse Brooklyn, a circus performance and practice space. I interviewed her about how difficult it's going to be to stay open throughout the lockdown and the fallout. I read Luther, who has worked with The Muse before, some of her quotes. Okay, she said... Well, I should say I screamed at him because of the face mask and the distance and the wind and all of that. Uh, you are the only, you are the one who's guarantor, who's guarantor on, that, on company that company and on that and space, space and, and no. knowing and seeing it kind of all financially crash and just knowing that like long after this is over, you may still have to be legally dealing with this. Luther's life as a solo act is hard enough. Imagine leading a community of performers. Do, do you feel guilty for just being a, a juggler by hire and not taking uh, up um, all that responsibility? No, I don't think so, because I feel like there's a there's a reason that I am a juggler for hire and that I would be terrible at doing that kind of job. 
Now, just because Luther would be terrible and Angela is good at what she does, does not mean that it's easy. We've been struggling for five years with the city and with the landlords. And so we've just had to constantly adapt and shift and pour ourselves into other molds just to exist. Do you think that ironically, because people are now understand how close everyone was to not making rent uh, and struggling as, as businesses that you may get sympathy from the financial industry or the city or... You know, I'm not sure. Um, we're really kind of dancing that tightrope right now. I'll say that it's just I'm filled on, um, with uh, puns, though. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> All the time. Um, but yeah, we. Um, I'm on calls every single week. I do two or more calls with um, studio owners, venue owners, um, throughout the city. And we talk about these things all the time. And we actually had two um, officials from the mayor's office on one of those calls. And we talk about the issue that like, none of our overhead has changed yet. We're not allowed to be operating. We're not allowed to be open. Um, and will there be help? Will it be coming? And that's still very unclear. Things were difficult before, not because of mismanagement. Yeah, even prior to this, we've had to operate all on temporary permits because the landlords for five years have blocked our permitting process. That means if they want to have a big event, then they have to apply for permits each time, which can cost between four and $6,000. Angela also says that because of illegal gas work done by the landlord, they were stuck with a $57,000 bill. So the muse has extra bills and a limited ability to pay them. And that was before the virus. Yeah, yeah. So well, let's let's pretend that that this virus didn't happen. Uh it was it was a big struggle to get the current space made. Uh, the stage was donated. You repurposed a bunch of lumber. It's it's always been a struggle. Um but in the rest of the world there is government-sponsored help for uh, for the arts, for uh, this, specifically the circus arts. Why, why New York? Why even stay in a place that seems to be so unsupportive? <laughs> We're sort of masochistic in that way. No, um, I'm joking. But it is the hardest place to do this. Like without a doubt, we're facing numbers that most people don't face in terms of financials. Um, and it, there are other places that would support us better. And that's a very real conversation that our community has been having. Our wonderful friend Luther Bangert again. Well, why, why, to... why do you, why why even be here? What's if, that? Why even be here if it's so hard? Hmm. Why, why put in all this extra work to... I guess it's hard, but there is a huge reward. Like, people do really appreciate art here. They appreciate circus arts here. Yeah, people people in New York love circus. They're, like, hungry for it. When I'm street performing, it's incredible. Uh, I have such an amazing response, like, more than any other city in, in the U.S., and maybe overall more than anywhere else in the world, actually. America isn't super loving to, to these eccentric things. Um, right. We need someone right. to keep the lights on. Yeah, you know, maybe they need it more. Maybe that's part of the issue. <laughs> maybe that's why. Compared to most of the rest of, like, Europe, Australia, um, the UK, etc., there's a lot of places that have huge funding for the arts and have a massive funding for the circus arts. And 
traveling the world was like, you meet all these Americans that are just like, they're like, I live in Germany now because I can actually make a living here really easily and they consider what I do art. And uh, it's really great. And yeah, I have health insurance. You know, and I've, I've toured around the world quite a bit, and I have dealt with some bureaucracy in, um, in other countries, so it's not to say that there isn't crap that goes down in other places, but in general, there does seem to be more of a support and an assist for it in other places, not, not quite the same picture here. that the states, we don't pay a lot for the arts compared to other countries. I didn't know how much of a struggle it is running a practice or event space or a specialized space. And when I hear Angela describe the saga of the fights with her landlord and trying to get the city to help them, it overwhelmed me. (laughs) And she lives with that. You're, you're required to care a lot, but you also, as like a leader, but you need to do so uh, in, a, in a way that's helpful. How are you doing? Um, I mean, the honest answer is it depends on which moment, on which day. <laughs> but there have been several people to come forward just to say we, as people, are together. So that space, you know, that was our shelter, that was our home, that was our sanctuary for whatever period of time it is. But if that doesn't exist, we still want to be together. So the, I feel like the community sense of the muse is bigger than the space in a way. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I gave um, Angela the, the old Jesus quote about when he says, whenever two or more are gathered in my name. Uh, <laughs> uh, the whole, like, whenever two or more are gathered in my name. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that will be the... I grew up Roman Catholic, so I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Remember how this piece took place on my birthday? Well, it did, and it was wonderful. Luther brought me a slice of cake, a book on the medicinal applications of the ginkgo tree, and he showed me a special birthday juggling trick. Oh, I was thinking this is the birthday trick. It's hard to explain. That's so cool. But basically, juggling can be mathematically transcribed. So Luther took my birthday, which was May 13th, 513, and converted it into a juggling pattern. He actually has to do 531 because for some math reason, 513 doesn't work out, but that's not important. What is important is Luther is not naturally coordinated. We started juggling at the same time and I was considerably better than him for a good six months. Him practicing daily, me not doing anything daily. He can be obsessive. That's how he became a great juggler. So juggling is not his talent. Obsession is. And Angela, while she has many talents as a performer, I think her real talent is bringing people together. And sometimes that ability can look a bit serendipitous. Last year, for a gig, Luther was flown out to his home state of Iowa for an event. And it was like, yeah, insane coincidence. It's like the town that I was born in, Burlington. And that was because of, because of Angela, basically, yeah. She, 
She asked me to do it. So Angela booked a show in a teeny town in Iowa where Luther was born. But that's not the end of the coincidences. That experience will never be forgotten. I got to see my my dear aunt, Karen, uh, just a week before she passed away. And no one really knew that she was... Uh, yeah, that she was going to pass away that soon. She got to come to the show and see me. Yeah, a lot of wonderful things. It was a coincidence that Luther's aunt saw him perform a week before that she died, albeit a beautiful one. But it's not a coincidence that the muse puts on wonderful shows. That's just hard work. Much harder work than I ever knew. But the muse Brooklyn is not gone yet. Do you have any uh, events or performances coming up? If you go to the Muse Brooklyn um, Facebook page at 7.30 p.m. on the 23rd, we will be going live. So just tune into that page. Once you see the live video, please uh, share it and join a little watch party. And we're going live with a bunch of our amazing performers. So the next upcoming show is on the 23rd. And then every single day we have classes, everything from meditation to um, Luther has a juggling class. We have some couples stretching and partner classes um, for our contortion students. We have some things going on as well. I don't know why we do what we do. I don't know why the muse does what they do, where they get their energy. My theory is that we all just have compulsions and it's either good or bad luck if our compulsions are beneficial. So it's just good luck that Angela and the others at the Muse Brooklyn are driven to create an underappreciated art. It's good luck that Luther has the compulsion to become a wonderful juggler and bring awe and wonder to crowds throughout the world. It's bad luck if your compulsions, you know, We don't have to go into which ones are bad. But regardless, it it will take more than luck to keep it going, to keep things like the muse going. I don't know how things will shake shake down, shake up. (laughs) Things certainly are shaken, shooken up. But I wish them good luck. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Jasmine Smith for Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm recording this news segment on Friday, May the 15th in my apartment with my cat, Dre. I hope that you're safe out there listening. So as we know, the news has been mostly focused on the COVID-19 pandemic that's raging through the United States, but that doesn't mean deaths from other causes have stopped. The story that I want to highlight today is about yet another Black person killed by police violence. According to MappingPoliceViolence.org, Black people are 3.1 times more likely to be killed by the police than white people and are 1.3 times less likely to be armed than white victims of police violence. So the news article that I want to talk to you about was written by Aaron Haynes for the Washington Post. And the title is Family Seeks Answers in Fatal Police Shooting of Louisville Woman in Her Apartment. 
and this story uh, was written on May the 11th. One of the most recent cases of police violence against Black people is that of Brianna Taylor, who was 26 years old when she died. Brianna was an EMT working in Louisville, Kentucky. Despite her being an essential worker in the midst of a global pandemic, it was not the highly contagious and deadly virus that took Brianna's life. It was a group of police officers who stormed her home unannounced with a battering ram the night of March 13th. So this story is being written about now and it's getting a little bit more attention, but it's two months old. It's more than two months old at this point. Brianna's family has filed a lawsuit against the Louisville Police Department. According to the suit, the police executed a search warrant at Brianna's home looking for a person who did not live there and had already been detained elsewhere. Taylor's boyfriend thought the couple were being robbed because according to him, an officer plowed down the apartment door with a battering ram at night, at which point he fired at the officer hitting him in the leg. The police then fired 20 rounds of ammunition into the apartment, hitting Brianna at least eight times, killing her. As of right now, Kenneth Walker, Brianna's boyfriend, is facing charges of attempted murder of a police officer. However, the officers who killed Brianna have been reassigned and have not been charged with any crimes so far. While the lynching of Ahmad Arbery drew national attention and was even spoken about on our show last week, months after he was killed, Brianna's murder has not received the same amount of attention. If you Google Taylor's name, there are roughly 1,660,000 search results. For Ahmad Arbery, there are over 16 million. If you Google both of their names with a hashtag in front, Hashtag Brianna Taylor yields 11,300 results, while hashtag Ahmad Arbery yields over 300,000. While black male victims are often made the face of police brutality and other extrajudicial killings, black people of all genders are being killed disproportionately. In this particular case, the fact that a recording of Ahmad's death went viral online can account for much of the discrepancy, but Black victims of police violence and racist killings are often given a lot more media coverage when the victims are men. Benjamin Crump, who is the lawyer representing Brianna's family, is also representing Ahmad Arbery's family. It seems that not only was an investigation into Ahmad's case delayed happening months after he was lynched, but the media attention on his killing also helped to spark more interest in Brianna's death. Crump says, quote, they're killing our sisters just like they're killing our brothers, but for whatever reason, we have not given our sisters the same attention that we have given to Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Stephon Clark, Terrence Crutcher, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Laquan McDonald. Crump continues to say, Brianna's name should be known by everybody in America who said those other names because she was in her home doing absolutely nothing wrong. Tamika Palmer is Brianna's mother. She says she was more concerned about her daughter's safety as an EMT but never expected her to not be safe in her own home. 
She was an essential worker. She had to go to work, Palmer said. She didn't have a problem with that. To not be able to sleep in her own bed without someone busting her door down and taking her life, I was just like, make sure you wash your hands, you know, because clearly as a mom, knowing you have a child in a high-risk profession with COVID-19 ravaging through this country the way that it is, that was her number one concern. Taylor's sister, Jania Palmer, has been on social media daily, posting pictures of the two of them with hashtags like Justice for Brie to remind people that she was a victim and not a suspect in a crime. Taylor did not have a criminal record. I'm just getting awareness for my sister, for people to know who she is, what her name is, said Jania Palmer, who was 20. She lived with Taylor but was not at home at the time of the incident. Photos and videos of runners with hashtags like Run with Maud and hashtag Ahmaud Arbery were trending in recent days, including last Friday, which would have been Arbery's 26th birthday. Crump is now calling for the same attention for, for Taylor. If you ran for Ahmad, you need to stand for Bree, Crump said. The investigation into Brianna's death is ongoing and we'll be sharing updates on the Objection to the Rule Facebook page with links for how you can get involved and support the family. Thank you for listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Stay safe. That has been our show for the week. Thank you for listening. You can catch our older episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn website and on iTunes podcasts. Stay tuned for some more independent media on Radio Free Brooklyn, and we'll be back next Sunday at 1 p.m. I'm going to play you out with a favorite feel-good song of mine. This is Stay In or Stay Out, Past the Duchy by Chris Ardwin and Double Clutchin. Have a great week and stay safe. <laughs>